tossing mane of snows in wildest eddies and tangles, lion-like march cometh in, hoarse with tempestuous breath through all the moaning chimneys and thwart all the hollows and angles, round the shuddering house, threatening of winter and death. But in my heart I feel the life of the wood in the meadow, thrilling the pulses that own kindred with fibers that lift bud and blade to the sunward. Within the inscrutable shadow, deep in the oak's chill core, under the gathering drift. Nay, to earth's life, in mind some prescience, or dream or desire, how shall I name it aright, comes for a moment and goes. Rapture of life ineffable, perfect, as if in the briar, leafless there by my door, trembled a sense of the rose. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Alexis and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of Usui, or Snow Becomes Rain. Spanning from February 19th to March 4th, this season is classically known for the arrival of the spring thaw. As ice and snow begin to melt, rain moistens the soil, while the first spring mists linger, and the buds on the trees begin to swell. The season of snow becomes rain is preceded by the mini-season, the beginning of spring, and followed by the mini-season, wintering insects awake. As in every season, there's lots to explore in the sky, in our lives, and in our gardens, as we begin our passage into this special period. As the ice begins to thaw, our hearts too are warming up. We are ready to explore outdoors after our winter days inside. Let's set out. The last days of February and the first days of March comprise a time of year that seems vastly different depending on where you are in the world. I think we can both agree that December and January feel like solidly winter months for the both of us, Alexis. But what about March? Here in California, it feels like spring is here. But I have the feeling that's not true for you in New York. You're right, Kit. Here in New York, the snow has been minimal this year, but it remains decidedly cold. At the same time, though, the light is strengthening and the days are growing longer. Spring definitely feels like it's at least a few weeks away. But according to the lunar calendar, this season follows the beginning of spring, so it's not too early to be looking for signs of life beneath the snow. In Japan, there's a weather phenomenon at this time of year that has a specific name. 
Sankan Shion, or Three Cold, Four Warm. This refers to the days around early March when there are three cold days in a row, followed by four warmer days, which are then again followed by three cold days, and the pattern repeats until it's solidly, officially, spring. That makes me think of a quote from Great Expectations by our old friend Charles Dickens. It was one of those March days when the sun shines hot and the wind blows cold, when it is summer in the light and winter in the shade. This season truly is one of transition, isn't it? Even though our weather might not follow such a specific patterns, the warmer days slowly overtaking the cold days is enough to make one feel hopeful. The snow on the ground will melt. That's what we look forward to in this season when snow becomes rain. It's not just the frozen landscape that gains movement and warmth. We have many sayings around this time of year that reflect the return of the natural motion of life. One such saying is, mad as a March hare. You may be familiar with the character, the March Hare, from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but the idea of the mad March Hare is older and based on the observation that during the hare's mating season, European hares behave in an unpredictable, excitable manner. In March, these hares can be seen to jump vertically into the air for seemingly no reason. They box with other hares and chase each other around, and so... In a way, they seem to have run mad. I think this kind of wild, natural frenzy, this madness, can be observed in lots of creatures around this time. In our February 2021 episode, The Beginning of Spring, we discussed the Kigo, or seasonal phrase, cats in love. Just now, it seems the whole animal kingdom is in love. The squirrels in my garden are running around wilder than ever, and the birds wake me in the morning with their songs. Though we may not perfectly understand them, it can be a pleasure to watch these early springtime antics. I made myself as a tree, no withered leaf twirling on me. No, not a bird that stirred the boughs, as looking out from wizard brows, I watched those lithe and lovely forms that raised the leaves in storms. I watched them leap and run, their bodies hollowed in the sun to thin transparency, that I could clearly see the shallow color of their blood, joyous in love's full flood. I was content enough, watching that serious game of love, that happy hunting in the wood, where the pursuer was the more pursued, to stand in breathless hush, with no more life myself than tree or bush. Another two seasonal words which capture the movement and vitality of this mini-season are melting snow and meltwater. Meltwater refers to the water that comes from melting snow and ice that goes on to feed wetlands, streams, and rivers. During this time of year, many waterways begin to reawaken and rise, reinvigorated by fresh waters. Speaking of invigorated waterways, this brings to mind the Moldau, 
a symphonic poem by Bohemian composer Bedrik Smetana. This piece follows the flow of the Moldau, from its source in the mountains of Bohemia, through the Czech countryside, and down to the city of Prague. This work begins with gurgling, rippling musical forms that represent the emergence of the Moldau River from two mountain springs. The musical spring water joins streams and brooks and eventually culminates in the mighty Moldau River. This piece is perhaps Smetana's enduring legacy. Its thick orchestration builds into a robust and memorable theme that recurs throughout. Now, with melting water and the Moldau in mind, let's listen to the opening of this symphonic poem. What a beautiful and stirring piece. It really captures the energy of the season. Perhaps we might now observe melting snow, slush, and running waters of springtime a bit differently. Here are a few haiku which celebrate watery themes. The snow on my hut melted away in a clumsy manner. The sun has set, and the spring water increased in volume? Ice and water, their differences resolved, are friends again. This last haiku by Tehitsu really seems to capture the essence of this mini-season. It reminds us that this time of year is full of subtle transitions. This poem also reminds me that for many, the spring thaw is upon us. We talked a little about this in our last episode covering the mini-season of deep cold. 
snow becomes rain is still very early days for a complete melting, but I think here and there, things are stirring, as the name of this season suggests. Speaking of thinking, our transition from February to March seems to be a clear marker between winter and spring. It reminds me of a phrase I heard recently. March is the month of expectation. What a wonderful phrase. It seems to me that we're all waiting and hoping and planning for spring's true arrival. And there is joy in this expectation. We revel in every sunny and warm days, however fleeting. I thought you'd appreciate the phrase. It's from a poem by Emily Dickinson. Let's listen. March is the month of expectation. The things we do not know, the persons of prognostication, are coming now. We try to show becoming firmness, but pompous joy betrays us, as his first betrothal betrays a boy. Emily Dickinson had a particular affinity with the month of March. She wrote five poems on the subject, another one of which we have featured on our Wintering Insects Awake episode in March 2021. For Emily, March was an important month of rebirth and new beginnings in nature. That sense of renewal and rediscovery is echoed in this passage by Elizabeth von Arnhem. Early March, gray, quiet skies and brown, quiet earth. Leafless and sad and lonely enough out there in the damp and silence, yet there I stood, feeling the same rapture of pure delight in the first breath of spring that I used to as a child. That passage, and Emily's poem, somehow puts me in mind of The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. I think my favorite part of that book is the sense of joy and anticipation when Mary realizes all the potential and life of the garden, a place which seems dead and withered. In my mind, she first opens the garden door just around this time of year. As she came near the second of these alcoves, she stopped skipping. There had once been a flower bed in it, and she thought she saw something sticking out of the black earth some sharp, little, pale green points. She remembered what Ben Weatherstaff had said, and she knelt down to look at them. Yes, they are tiny growing things, and they might be crocuses, or snowdrops, or daffodils, she whispered. She bent very close to them and sniffed the fresh scent of the damp earth. She liked it very much. Perhaps there are some other ones coming up in other places, she said. I will go all over the garden and look. She did not skip, but walked. She went slowly and kept her eyes on the ground. She looked in the old border beds and among the grass and after she had gone round, trying to miss nothing, she had found ever so many more sharp, pale green points, and she had become quite excited again. It isn't quite a dead garden, she cried out softly to herself. Even if the roses are dead, 
there are other things alive. Ah, the secret garden is truly magical, isn't it? It's one of my favorite books. And listeners, if you love The Secret Garden, and gardening too, I highly recommend a newly published book called Unearthing the Secret Garden, Plants and Places that Inspired Francis Hodgson Burnett, written by Marta McDowell. I learned so much, not just about gardens and the novel itself, but about Hodgson Burnett as a person. I haven't read this yet, but I imagine the author explores some of the early flowers of spring. We've talked in previous episodes about snowdrops, daffodils, and paperwhites, but I have a few more to offer. Heather, or Coluna vulgaris, is one late winter, early spring blooming plant at home in the moors surrounding Misselthwaite Manor. It is also a lovely addition to any garden. Heather is a small evergreen shrub a relative of Andromeda, Paris japonica, rhododendron, and mountain laurel. The flowers bloom in autumn or early spring. In this way, I suppose, you can say that Heather is a friend to the bees, providing them with some of the last and first pollen of the season. Heather is typically found in Europe and parts of Asia. It is the dominant plant growing on the heath and moorland in Europe. It prefers acidic, low-nutrient soil and is deer-resistant. Heather adds an evergreen color to your borders or as a ground cover, providing much cheer in the gray days of early spring. We couldn't talk about Heather and not include the Bronte sisters, who helped capture our imagination through the English moorland. Here's a poem by Emily Bronte, full of Heather, rushing rivers, and the anticipation of the season. High-waving heather, neath stormy blasts bending, midnight and moonlight and bright shining stars, darkness and glory rejoicingly blending, earth rising to heaven and heaven descending, man's spirit away from its drear dungeon sending, bursting the fetters and breaking the bars. All down the mountainsides, wild forest lending, one mighty voice to the life-giving wind, rivers their banks in the jubilee rending, fast through the valleys a reckless course wending, wider and deeper their waters extending, leaving a desolate desert behind. Shining and lowering and swelling and dying, changing forever from midnight to noon, roaring like thunder, like soft music sighing, Shadows on shadows advancing and flying. Lightning bright flashes, the deep gloom defying, coming as swiftly and fading as soon. Another botanical harbinger of spring is the quince. This is a tree related to the apple the sole member of the genus Cydonia in the family Rosacea. Quince is known for their early spring blossoms in shades of pink and deep red. The plant is very hardy, with pointy thorns and suited well to be trained into bonsai. In addition to its early blossoms, quince is also beloved for producing yellow fruit, 
which looks similar to an apple. The fruit is tart and sour when raw, but when cooked, becomes highly aromatic. Added in small quantities, the strong perfume of quince will enhance the taste of apples in tarts, pies, and applesauce. It's also popular in Asian medicine. There's a Spanish delicacy called dulce de membrillo, which is a sweet, spreadable quince paste you add to your sandwich or eat with cheese and crackers. It's a wonderful sweet and savory delight. A perfect addition for your charcuterie spread at your next party. How about some dulce de mebrio to enjoy during a flower viewing party? Actually, people have enjoyed quince for centuries. The fruit is a sacred emblem of the goddess Aphrodite, and the Greeks associated the golden fruit with the Isle of Crete. Maybe King Midas's golden touch extended to the beautiful gold quince fruit. The quince was revered in Islamic cultures too. There's a saying, eat quince for it sweetens the heart. Let's celebrate the quince and its blossom with this poem by Meng Haoran, written in the Tang Dynasty. This spring morning in bed I'm lying, not to awake till the birds are crying. After one night of wind and showers, how many are the fallen flowers? Ah, even sturdy quince blossoms must fall, mustn't they? Let's listen to another poem. This one written by Honsai, the grandmaster of the Urasenke School of Tea. This poem is a metaphor about tea practice, but it could also be read to be about the great endurance of blossoms like quince, peach, and plum. The plum tree bent under the winter freeze with showers all at once opens its buds. The moon through mists projects its shadow. In the dark, breezes carry its scent. A few days back, the trunk was buried in snow. Now, branches bear flowers anew through hardship and the bitter cold. This dignity at the forefront of spring. This poem reminds me of the strength we can find in the natural world. Blossoming in the snow, the snow becomes the blossom. Let's explore another revered blossom of this season with Hiroaki Sato and make time for Hiro's Corner, narrated by Ed von Atterkass. Peach Blossoms uh, the seasonal word that Alexis and Kit gave me this time is momonohana, peach blossoms. So let's begin with this haiku. Set beside the peach, inserted rapeseed flowers their light. In this haiku, blossoms of the peach are not mentioned, but those unmentioned blossoms, which are most likely pink, are contrasted with the rapeseed flowers, which are put in the same vase, perhaps, and yellow. And Kubata Mantoro, who wrote this haiku, is saying, we assume, that though both peach blossoms and flowers are radiant, the rapeseed flowers emanate a greater light. When you read the Japanese original of this haiku, you notice that the word kana is ignored in my translation. It is a kireji, a word that is supposed to add to the sense of wonderment or even lamentation. And three words are frequently used, the other two being ya and keri. 
When I was elected president of the Haiku Society of America back in 1979, such a long time ago, how to recreate any of these in English was a hot subject, some suggesting a comma, an exclamation, or a dash. Now, when you mention peach blossoms in Japan, you also think of Momo no Seku, the festival of peach blossoms, or informally, Momo no Hi, Peach Day. So on Peach Day, around 1692, Basho was with two of his disciples in his hut, and the three composed hoku, according to the samurai and haiku poet Sakurai Kopo. Basho's poem is as follows. On both hands, peach and cherry and grass cakes. Kikaku. On the cookie tray, miniature dolls, peach flowers. Nenransetsu. On Peach Day, the crab is derided by a bell. Uh, you'll notice that each of these pieces comes with the kireji. These pieces were composed when haiku were called hoku, and many of them come laden with what you might call symbolic meanings today. For example, basho's hoku was meant to mean I'm grateful to find myself with two of my admirable disciples, peach blossoms and cherry blossoms, as we enjoy humble grass cakes. The opening haiku I quoted was by Kubata Mantaro, who lived from 1889 to 1963. Mantaro, the popular novelist and playwright, also wrote haiku as a hobby, as he insisted. What he meant was that haiku today, as in the past, were written as members of a group or followers of a school, but he composed haiku on his own. Did that make his haiku different from the haiku of most others? Well, I don't know. Now, Momo no Seku is also known as Hina Matsuri, or Dolls Festival, or Girls' Day. During the Edo period, the government set Gosaku, which means five festivals. The seventh of the first month, which was New Year's Day, the third of the third month, which was the Dolls Festival, the fifth of the fifth month, which was Boys' Day, the seventh of the seventh month, uh, Tanabata, or Star Festival, and the ninth of the ninth month, which was Chrysanthemum Day. But I'll leave it to Kit and Alexis to tell you more about that. In the meantime, may the beauty of the peach blossoms fill you with the hopefulness of the coming spring. Thank you, Hiro, for that wonderful exploration of peach blossoms. But before we leave the land of early spring blooms, we have a few more to celebrate. The witch hazel is another shrub which brings cheer to the gray scenery in early spring. Its ragged blossoms in shades of yellow or red provide a brilliant pop of color and have a wonderful spicy fragrance. In case you're wondering, the witch hazel is not the kind that produces hazelnuts. The use of the word hazel refers to the similarity of the leaves to the hazel tree. And the word witch also doesn't have anything to do with wise old women, but instead is a derivation from an old English word meaning pliable. Here's a poem by Elizabeth Akers Allen, which revels in the alluring power of the wild witch hazel. 
What wizard, wise in spells of drugs and gums, with weird divining rod, conjures this luminous loveliness that comes as if by magic from the frozen sod? Fearless witch hazel, braver than the oak that dares not bloom till spring, thus to defy the frost's benumbing stroke with challenge of November blossoming. And yet it has an airy, delicate grace denied all other flowers, and lights the gloom as some beloved face dawns on the dark of melancholy hours. Miraculous shrub that thus in frost and blight smilest all undismayed, and scatterest from thy wands of golden light a sudden sunshine in the chilly glade. One more floral friend who ushers in the spring, the crocus. Crocuses are fondly favored by gardeners for bringing early bursts of color to the garden. They are among the first buds to emerge from the snow in February and March. A perennial flower, crocuses come in a variety of colors, pinks, blues, reds, oranges, purples, yellows, and even more. And they also perfume the garden with bee-attracting scents early in the season. Looking at their sweet little flowers, it's little wonder that in the Victorian language of flowers, crocuses meant gladness and cheerfulness. Who could look on a crocus and not feel a little more cheerful, knowing that spring is on its way? Here is a poem about the hopefulness the crocus brings by Hannah Flagg Gould. Down in my solitude under the snow, where nothing cheering can reach me. Here, without light to see how to grow, I'll trust to nature to teach me. I will not despair, nor be idle, nor frown, locked in so gloomy a dwelling. My leaves shall run up, and my roots shall run down, while the bud in my bosom is swelling. Soon as the frost will get out of my bed from this cold dungeon to free me, I will peer up with my little bright head. All will be joyful to see me. Then from my heart will young petals diverge as rays of the sun from their focus. I from the darkness of earth will emerge a happy and beautiful crocus. Gaily arrayed in my yellow and green, when to their view I have risen, Will they not wonder that one so serene came from so dismal a prison? Many, perhaps, from so simple a flower, this little lesson may borrow. Patient today, through its gloomiest hour, we come out the brighter to morrow. Say, do you hear that, Alexis? That might be a familiar spring sound to some. Is that a goose call? We already talked about migrating geese in our cold dew episode from October 2020. Yes, and in the culture of Kigo for haiku in Japan, migrating birds is solidly an autumnal Kigo. However, the birds that flew south for the winter are now heading back in spring. I think returning geese is a good Kigo for this season. You have a point, Kit. In fact, in the ancient Chinese almanac, upon which the Japanese almanac we follow here on season by season was based, 
one of the pentads, or micro-seasons, of our Snow Becomes Rain mini-season was called Wild Geese Arrive. Their northward migration begins right around this time. Here are two haiku by Isa referring to the spring geese migration, both of which sound a little wistful to me. The geese go north. Today, they see rice fields full of water. Returning geese, have you completely given up on me? This second haiku creates a clear image. The geese are leaving after their long winter visit, and not one of them stops to say goodbye to Isa. Maybe Isa is watching them with a little bit of envy as they return home. This talk of returning geese reminds me of a quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. How do the geese know when to fly to the sun? Who tells them the seasons? How do we, humans, know when it is time to move on? As with the migrant birds, so surely with us, there is a voice within, if only we would listen to it, that tells us, so certainly, when to go forth into the unknown. Hmm. There's something to think about. I think the sense is, once again, to everything there is a season. Ah, uh, that's true. And though we've been talking about hopefulness, movement, and the return of warmer days, the truth is that this season can be quite a tempestuous one. Those returning geese might have quite a journey ahead of them. By tempestuous, you mean stormy weather? Yes, indeed. And March storms can be the stuff of legend. Meteorologically speaking, there is still a lingering cold in late February and early March, but the increased daylight hours means things are warming up. And there's a tension between these temperatures. Severe weather, including snowstorms, high winds, and rainfall flooding, can be caused by the release of the potential energy from the low-pressure systems created by this temperature contrast. Here in the United States, March historically has been the month with the most dangerous weather. In the high plains and in the Rockies, March is the snowiest month on average. In parts of the Midwest and New England, March tends to be a month of flood warnings, as snow melts and spring rains come a little too quickly. March is the windiest month in many parts of the country, too. Not to mention all the deadly blizzards and tornadoes that have occurred in March. As Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote, March with grief doth howl and rave. Or how about Ralph Waldo Emerson's quote, Our life is March weather, savage and serene in one hour. That's a feeling that comes up for me time and again in this season. To everything there is a season, yes, but early spring reminds us that for all our calendars and almanacs, the ways we measure and observe, for all our human predictions, nature can be unpredictable. The stormy March is come at last, with wind and cloud and changing skies. I hear the rushing of the blast that through the snowy valley flies. Ah, passing few are they who speak, wild stormy month, in praise of thee. Yet though thy winds are loud and bleak, 
thou art a welcome month to me. For thou to northern lands again the glad and glorious sun dost bring, and thou hast joined the gentle train, and wearest the gentle name of spring. Occasionally on this show, we discuss saint days. In episodes past, we have explored the Ice Saints in May, St. Swithin's Day in July, Santa Lucia in December, and now, in this season, falls the feast day of St. Chad. St. Chad's Day falls on March 2nd, and among other things, he is considered the patron saint of medicinal springs. This brings to mind onsen, or hot springs of Japan. This is a very tenuous transition, Alexis, to the topic of hot springs. I know. But St. Chad's Day does fall within this mini-season, and he is the patron saint of medicinal springs. And these rather quiet days of late February and early March happen to be a great time of year to visit a spa. The days are cold, but the waters are warm, our skin is dry, and the healing waters can nourish it. But really though, we've gone nearly 23 episodes without mentioning hot springs once, and we're running out of time. If I have to make a tenuous connection between St. Chad and Onsens, I will do so. I understand, Alexis. I understand. After all, this couldn't be a podcast about Japan without us discussing Onsen, hot springs, Rotenburo, open air springs, or Sento, public baths. Listeners, hot springs in Japan really are common, and they come in all sorts of mineral varieties, including sulfur, sodium chloride, hydrogen carbonate, and iron. They truly are one of my favorite things about Japan, ever. And the thing I missed most here in America, chlorinated jacuzzis just can't compare with those mineral-rich, nearly scalding waters fueled by the subterranean activities of the Ring of Fire. It's true. Onsen and Sento are really part of Japanese culture. Everyone goes for a soak in onsen an experience separated by gender, at least several times a year, if not weekly. Onsen etiquette, and indeed, general bath etiquette in Japan, dictates that you clean yourself thoroughly before entering the tub. Then, fully clean, you soak to your heart's content. At less than three or four dollars for admission to pools, showers, jet-powered baths, and more in many modern-day amenities, Medicinal springs and baths are a great form of affordable and indulgent entertainment. Let's take a dip into an onsen with some steamy haiku. Those ten years of sweat wash them away in the hot springs of Dogo. Entering the waters alone in spring, the onsen overflows. The rain begins to fall. We seek cover in the onsen. A train headed for onsen country. One cherry blossom falls. Steam from the onsen. If the north wind quieted, the mountains would be hidden. 
In the cold air, float clouds from the second story, Onsen. Listeners, if you're based here in the United States like Kit and I, I have to admit it's very hard to find anything that equals a Japanese onsen. I mean, do see what you can find, but better yet, make sure onsens are on your travel itinerary when you happen to go to Japan. Spring, summer, autumn, or winter, there's always time for an onsen. I promise you, listeners, you won't regret it. A trip to an onsen is truly not to be missed. And one more thing not to be missed before we close this episode. Yes. A final holiday that falls at the end of this season, on March 3rd, is Hinamatsuri, or the Doll Festival. Ah, yes, Hinamatsuri. This day is also known as Girls' Day, in the same way that May 5th is still sometimes known as Boys' Day. Psst, listeners, do you remember Kodomo no Hi from all the way back in our May 2020 episode Grain Rain? If not, go give a listen. Girls' Day has become a celebration of all things classically considered feminine in Japan. Hinamatsuri is also known as Momo no Seku, or the Peach Festival, and originated as an auspicious day for celebrating peach blossoms, as discussed in Hiro's Corner. In 1624, during Momo no Seku, Emperor Go Mizuno's daughter Okiko played with and displayed dolls. Okiko grew up and eventually succeeded her father as Empress Meisho, and dolls took on a more central role in the festival until finally, in 1687, Hinamatsuri became the legal name of the festival. It has become a day to pray for the health and growth of the girls in the family. Families with daughters typically display dolls during this time and celebrate their children. No Hina dolls. You are the flower face of peach blossom. This old thatched hut will change inhabitants now. A home with dolls. Hinamatsuri means doll festival, but these are no ordinary dolls that children play with every day. Hina refers specifically to the ornamental doll of the festival. The dolls typically wear costumes of the imperial court of the Heian period, from 794 to 1185. And during the festival, they're displayed on a tiered platform. It's said that the dolls at the top of the pier, the emperor and empress dolls, represent the girl of the family and her future husband. The dolls are usually given as a gift to girls upon their birth from their grandparents. The top tier is for the emperor and empress dolls, and the lower tiers are for their attendants and musicians. The dolls tend to be expensive, and having an elaborate display can be a source of pride for a family. Many families take out their display around mid-February, but put the dolls away promptly after the festival is over. This is because of an old superstition that if you put your dolls away late, your daughter will get married late. Unchanging dolls' faces. I've had no choice except to grow old. Sexual politics of the festival aside, as with most holidays, food and drink are an important feature. Peach blossoms and peach flavors are still very popular around Hinamatsuri. 
hishimochi, diamond-shaped rice cakes, are placed alongside the Hina dolls. Colorful chirashi zushi cakes are also very popular to serve at Hina Matsuri parties. Listeners, are you intrigued? We'll have some Hina Matsuri-related recipes on our website, so please be sure to check them out. Hina Matsuri comes at the end of this season of movement and transition, and is itself about transition in a way. A celebration of girls as they grow into adulthood. Let's close with the traditional song of Hina Matsuri. The lyrics are as follows. Let's light the lanterns. Let's place the peach flowers. Five court musicians are playing flutes and drums. Today is a joyful Hina Matsuri. Listeners, thank you for joining us in the season when snow becomes rain. In this season of motion, we continue to move forward to brighter days ahead. As you may remember, the mini-season that follows snow becomes rain according to the Japanese calendar is the season wintering insects awake. We will include a link to our archival 2021 episode for you to enjoy in the next season ahead. Some of the kigo, or seasonal words we discussed in the season of Snow Becomes Rain are March hares, the month of expectation, running streams, melting snow, spring thaw, the secret garden, heather blossoms, quince blossoms, peach blossoms, witch hazel, crocuses, wild geese returning, stormy weather, St. Chad's Day, onsen, and hinamatsuri. Listeners, what are some seasonal words you associate with this thawing season? As always, you can email your Kiko to seasonbyseasonpodcast at gmail.com, or feel free to share them to our Facebook page. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by William Dean Howells, Andrew Young, Kobayashi Isa, Kito, Teihitsu, Emily Dickinson, Francis Hodgson Burnett, Emily Bronte, Meng Haoran, Onsai, Elizabeth Akers Allen, Hannah Flagg Gould, William Cullen Bryant, Shiki, Natsume Soseki, Tenosuke Matsuzeki, Shoha Kuroyanagi, 
Kenji Fukami, Chiharu Yazaki, Rogetsu, Matsuo Basho, and Seifu. The poems featured in this podcast are in the public domain or with permission from their creators. We would like to thank our poetry readers for this episode. Julia Holmes Bailey, Catherine Piper, Chris Whitaker, Jackie Meyer, Brenda McKinney, Anne Chow, Ian Whitaker, Zachary Piper, Alan Coyne, Vidalia Albanese, Bernabe Ted Castalis, Carl Smith, Jason Berner, and Nikki Genf. We would also like to extend a special thanks to Hiroaki Sato for his contribution segment, Hiro's Corner, and to narrator Ed von Adderkass. As always, there's lots of extra seasonality at our website, seasonbyseason.org, including recipes, visual examples of Kigo, and of course, our specially curated music playlists, full of songs that should last you all season long. As the spring thaw begins, I'm reminded of a quote from Henry David Thoreau. If rivers come out of their icy prison thus bright and immortal, shall not I too resume my spring life with joy and hope? We're wishing you a spring full of joy and hope. We hope you'll join us for our next and final episode, Spring Equinox, our 24th as we complete our turn through the mini-seasons of the Japanese calendar. See you in another season.